Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Reg Nolan. It is entitled, Spirit of the Law. Reg. Thank you. I learned a trick from Mr. Ian Hufton while he was here uh, last week, and that is to hand out uh, a handout full of uh, scripture references. I just wish I had his pocket watch. <laughs> okay, spirit of the law. Um, as a magistrate is delivering, uh, deliberating over his decision about uh, the case that is brought before him, he must take into consideration three aspects of the law. The letter of the law, the intent of the law, and the spirit of the law. Those three legal aspects also apply to God's law, the Ten Commandments. Now, we've all heard countless messages about the letter of law, detailing what the law is, whether it's still in effect, and yes, it is, um, and whether, how it applies to various situations, what the benefits of obeying it are, what the consequences of disobedience are. We have also heard many messages about the intent of God's law. That is to say, it, it is to provide a standard of righteousness for our behavior and attitude. Psalm 119, 172 says, Thy tongue shall speak thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. They're righteousness. That's one of our purpose or the intent of the law. That the law establishes for our own good a mode of conduct for our interactions with God and our fellow human beings. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as, in, as it is this day, that it might be for our righteousness if we observe to do these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So it's to our benefit that we do these. It also defines what sin is so that we can recognize it. What, who, uh, John, 1 John 3, 4, we all know this one. Whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And in Romans 4, 15, because the law works out wrath, therefore where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if there is no law, there can be no sin, etc. along the way. Um, that, is, that it is to serve as our schoolmaster. This is a very big one. Uh, that it is to serve as our schoolmaster, to teach us the ways of righteousness. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, to do bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified through faith. But when all is said and done, the purpose of the law is very simply to teach us how to love as Jesus implied in Matthew 22. Uh, 22. Matthew 22, verses uh, 36 to 40 says, Master, uh, this is a, a lawyer tempting Jesus. He says, Master, which is the great commandment? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul, all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second one is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Yet, we also know that it was never the intent of the law to save us, but to rather to convict us of our sins that might, we might repent of them. For salvation requires Christ, our near kinsman, our redeemer. We cannot earn it of our own accord, for we are truly only worthy of death for our own sins. Uh, clearly, a future life eternal is a gift of God that is reserved for his children. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Romans 6, 23 confirms the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. However, we haven't heard a whole lot about the spirit of the law. We have probably because it's a little bit more nebulous than either the letter of the law or the intent. But within the Ten Commandments, there's a natural spirit that I'm going to show here today. Within these Ten Commandments, there are two natural groupings. The first four commandments describe our relationship to God, and the final six describe our relationship to one another. But do you realize that in the second group, there are echoes of the spirit presented in the first full four? What we hear in those echoes is the essence of the spirit of the law. Perhaps it is this violation of spirit of the law that prompts James to warn us about the, the interconnectivity of the law. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And Jesus himself warned us of the danger of trivializing even the least of these laws. Matthew 5.19 says, Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do them and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I suggest, then, that within the law, there are four spirits overtly stated in the first group of the four about our relationship to God and echoed in the final six about our relationship to one another. These spirits are the spirit of honor and right reverence, the violation of which is disrespect, the spirit of faithfulness, the violation of which is betrayal, the spirit of honesty and integrity, the violation of which is lies and deception, and the spirit of obedience and lawful self-discipline, the spirit of which is a wanton disregard for law and righteousness as is manifested in this me-first attitude. So, let us, again... Re-examine the law, but this time with an ear to the spirit. I'm going to try to do something that's kind of hard to do. I'm going to take an old topic and try to bring something new to it. Let us examine the law again, this time with an ear to the spirit. That still small voice and that echoes through the Decalogue, amplifying them to a broader life principle. First topic, the spirit of the law and right reverence. Consider now the first and the fifth commandments together as the first of the four parallels. Exodus 23 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20.12 says, Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long on the land uh, which the Lord God has given thee. Both of these commandments embody a spirit of honor and right reverence, rendering right appropriate respect to those who are due it. First to God, Lord of all, and second, to our parents who spawned and nurtured us to adulthood. But by extension, that spirit of respect should be shown to others as well. To our elders, who must have done something, right, in order to have survived the old age, right? Okay? Uh, for, 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 from whose experience and whose wisdom we can benefit. To the legitimate authorities who, who, and the bosses whom God has allowed to have position of judgment over us. To service personnel, such as policemen, 
firefighters, teachers, EMTs, custodians, groundskeepers, bus drivers, restaurant waitstaff, cooks, servants, and others who render a service to us at a compensation rate far, far less than what they're worth. To wives and mothers who nurture the future generations to adulthood. In short, we should eventually render a right appropriate respect to nearly everyone, if for no other reason than they are a part of God's creation and potentially part of his family. Further, that respect extends far beyond mere civil courtesies to one another, but to a respect for life itself. Hence the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, echoes the spirit of the respect for life the violation of which dishonors God's creation and the creator. Likewise, we can show a respect for God's creation or disrespect for God's creation if we abuse and pollute the environment. God gave us this creation for our use and instructed us to do what? As Genesis 2.15 says, to dress and to keep it. Instead, in our vanity and greed, we have abused the environment, polluting the atmosphere and waters raping the land of its minerals, destroying the forest, depleting the soil, tampering with the genetic code for our food, hunting, hunting animals to extinction. We also disrespect one another if we do not acknowledge the property rights of someone else. They've earned it. They've gone out, they've worked for it. They've, they've bought, earned the cash and they bought it. That's property rights. If we do not acknowledge that, we're showing disrespect as well. And that, hence the um, Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. Even coveting another person's possession demonstrates a failure to respect the other person's efforts. Hence the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, or anything else that is thy neighbor's. That's Exodus 17. And adultery represents the marriage, uh, disrespects the marriage vows. Hence the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But we'll get more on that one later. Uh, thus, through the violation of the spirit of respect, the spirit of respect, if it is violated, all ten commandments end up being broken. What is the spirit of respect? It is the, it, the spirit of disrespect. It is the self-centered sense of greed. The idea of, I'll get mine while the getting's good. And it dishonors God. A side note. There's an interesting little ambiguity in one of the words in the uh, first commandment. In the word before. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In one sense, that word before could mean above or with greater priority. But it also could function as an adverb of place or an adverb of position, which implies a disrespect toward God if we parade a bunch of false gods in front of him, even if they're intended to honor him. Either meaning violates the concept of respect. Our God is very particular about how he wants to be worshipped, or more accurately, how he does not want to be worshipped and is offended by any attempt to worship him using the trappings and the worship practices that are surrendered to other gods. Let's look at some examples of that. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in your land, which the Lord your God, thy fathers, has given thee to, to possess it all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess 
serve their gods, upon the high mountains, upon the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars, and break down their pillars, and burn their groves and with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them that, um, out of that place. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. So God does not want to be worshipped in the way uh, that you, we serve other people. We cannot use the trappings of worship to other gods to serve him. Deuteronomy 12, uh, verses 30 to 31. Take heed to yourself that you be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before you, that thou not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so, I will do likewise. I mean, there's a lot of fascination with ancient cultures and the gods that they serve. Uh, but we don't want to inquire after them in order to serve in the same way. Um, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord your God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth, they have done unto their God. For even their sons and their daughters have they burnt in the fire to their gods. Deuteronomy 18:14. For these nations which you shall possess... Hearken to, to observers of times and unto diviners. And for those who don't know, observers of times would be astrologers. Okay? Um, but for, as for thee, the Lord the God has not suffered you to do so. Deuteronomy 20, verses 17 and 18. Thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Pezzarites and the Hivites and the Jejubites, as the Lord thy God commanded thee, that they that they teach you not to do after their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So you should sin against the Lord your God. So it's not only a mistake to hold something higher than God, but even to parade the images of other gods before God. Second spirit, the spirit of faithfulness. Consider now together the second commandment, prohibited idolatry, and the seventh commandment, prohibiting adultery. These two commandments in particular are intricately linked by the spirit of the law, the spirit of faithfulness, whose negative perversion thereof is betrayal. In particular, pay attention to the language that is used in the second commandment. Let's look at the second commandment. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or likeness thereof, uh, of it, likeness of anything in the heaven above or in the earth below or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down, bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I thy Lord am a jealous God. Notice that language, jealous, implying the same sense of adultery when it's betrayed. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto the thousands of them that love thee and keep my commandments. And then Exodus uh, 20, 14 is the sixth commandment, thou, our seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Our God is a God overflowing with love for his children, but he is wounded, hurt to the heart by our betrayal when we turn to other gods other than him. And like a cuckold spouse becomes righteously indignant for idolatry is a betrayal of trust and a betrayal of love. Indeed, our God characterizes himself as jealous. Look at some of the passages where he actually calls himself jealous. Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
Look uh, at uh, Jeremiah 2.13 for a powerful metaphoric image of the difference between the worship of Jehovah and the worship of the Baals. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have instead hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. In psychological journeys, a cistern is a, an image of something that catches water or catches the water that flows down from heaven as rainwater. So it is an image of spirituality. But here we see these people, they have given up an artesian well of water that flows up and bountiful, never stopping, and a, a fountain of living water and have replaced it with what? Not just a cistern, but a broken cistern, one that doesn't work. Um, that's a powerful image in my, my thinking. And indeed, adultery is a very tender wound for our God, for he too is a betrayed spouse. The entire life of the prophet Hosea and his marriage to the whore Gomer is a metaphor for God's relation with Israel and Judah. More overtly, in Isaiah 54, God declares to Israel in Isaiah 54, 5, For thy maker is thy husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. Thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, he shall be called. But we see uh, Jehovah's declaration of marriage to Judah and Israel and his frustration with their betrayal even more overtly in Jeremiah 3. We're going to stay here for a while because Jeremiah 3 is a very powerful scripture for this relationship, this marriage relationship that God has with both Israel and Judah. Jeremiah 3, verses 1 and 2. They say, if a man puts away his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man, then, he shall, then shall he return to her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted? Thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, and yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the high places. See where thou hast not been lain with. In the past, thou them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and thy wickedness. Here it is as if God is saying to Israel, I look around the house and I can't see a single spot where you haven't christened with your adulteries. In the bed, the floor, the couch, the chair, the shower, the kitchen, the counter, even the dining room table. Everywhere I look, I see reminders of your infidelity. He is clearly frustrated. He's loving her. He's caring for her, but unable to tolerate the serial infidelity that she is committing. Verse, continue in verse 6. The Lord also said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And I said that she had done all these things, turned unto me, but she would return not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, and, and when, sorry, I saw when for these causes where backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away, had given her a bill of, diver, of divorce. And yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, and, uh, and, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom. Notice what that lightness, lightness of whoredoms mean? That she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and stocks. Lightness of whoredom means she's not taken even as a serious love uh, relationship, but just sex for fun. That's what it is for. God is a divorcee. Do you see that? 
God is a divorcee, having divorced Israel, but remaining married to Judah effectively for the children's sake, for Jesus' sake. However, Judah is not deterred by God's uh, judgment against Israel, but goes and does even worse than Israel, not only taking lovers of foreign governments, but also committing adultery with stocks and sto stones and stocks. The image of Judah transforming the idols of the Baals into dildos is most powerful. Continuing in verse 10. Uh, Jeremiah 3, verses 10 through 15. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned from me with her whole heart, but faintedly with her, says the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel has justified herself uh, more than treacherous Judah. So the first one that he had put away turns out to be better than the one who he kept around. You know that situation. Go and proclaim these words uh, through the north, says, and say, Return, thou backsiding Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, says the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord, that hast scattered thy ways before the strangers. That's an interesting image. Scatter your ways among, under, to the strangers. Under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will... And I take you uh, one of a city and two of a family, and I bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which they shall feed upon you with knowledge and understanding. Notice what's going on here. The, rule, the law says that once a, a woman has been committed adultery and divorce, she may, may not return unto her former husband. However, God is saying, if you'll come back to me, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. He loves her that much. Uh, but she ne neglects to do so. So at this point in history, God is still holding out hope that his unfaithful wives will realize that he, not the foreign lovers, is the source of her salvation and that they will return unto him who promised to forgive their betrayal. Continue now at verse 20. Um, surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard in upon the high places, weeping and supplication of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their ways, they have forgotten the Lord of their God. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. Behold, ye come here unto me, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly and in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Clearly, this spirit law that links the second and the seventh commandment is a spirit of faithfulness and the, on the positive side and betrayal on the negative side. Third spirit. The spirit of honesty and integrity links the third commandment against using God's name in vain, uh, vain, and the ninth commandment against bearing false witnesses, that is to say, perjury or lying under oath, especially when such lying witness can condemn a defendant to death. Okay? Thou shalt ta not take the name of the Lord in vain, for the Lord will hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. So says the uh, third commandment on Exodus 27. And the... Um, uh, and the ninth commandment in Exodus 20:16, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This spirit is really, really, really simple. 
tell the truth. Don't lie. But in many ways, it's a continuation of the same spirit of faithfulness that we saw manifest in the, in the second and seventh commandment. But this time, instead of being faithful to a person, it is faithful to an abstraction, the truth, instead of the fifth person. Like a faithful spouse, we should hold true to the facts. I'm reminded of, you know, uh, the famous catchphrase from Dragnet's uh, Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. This spirit echoes the line also from the witness's oath. It is a commitment to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That involves a faithful recounting of events without distortion, without emission, without euphemism. You know that word euphemism? It's an elevation of one, with the language. It's like saying, uh, if you're describing your job, I'm an inventory manager at Target. Instead of saying, I'm a stop boy at Target. That's what a euphemism is. Okay? Swearing an oath is an effectively a verbal contract wherein one promises to tell the truth under perjury, uh, penalty of uh, punishment for perjury. Try saying that three times fast. Ideally, swearing should not even be necessary, as James admonishes us. James 5, 12. But above all things, brethren, swear not, neither by or by earth, neither by any other earth. But let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. In other words, take a stand. Before something or against something, don't stand in the middle. If you stand in the middle of the road, you're likely to hit on both sides. Um, okay, but James also uh, was merely echoing the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 5, 34 through 37. I, Jesus is speaking here. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because you cannot make one uh, hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, or nay, nay, for whatever is more than that comes from evil. Speaking of evil, we should remember that lying is not part of godly character, but it is an artifact of the devil. John 8, 4, uh, 8 4 says, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there was no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In all honesty, if we have to swear to the truthfulness of a statement, then it's probably not true anyway. Okay? Not having to swear to the truthfulness of a statement is the byproduct of integrity of character. No one questions the word of a person of integrity. That's why every politician has to be sworn in office. <laughs> okay. the last one, the spirit of obedience and lawful self-discipline. The fourth commandment, sanctifying the Sabbath as a time sacred to God, is unique among the Ten Commandments in, it, in that it is the test commandment which evaluates our willingness to obey God's law. But while the fourth commandment is unique, its spirit of obedience and lawfulness permeates the entire law, the violation of which reveals an egocentric self-will. Exodus 20. Eight, verses 8 through 11. This is the 
statement of the, of the uh, fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. The seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord, uh, of the Sabbath, of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do no work, thou nor, not thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor cattle, nor stranger that is within thy gate. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Um, therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Did you catch that? The Sabbath day is a celebration of creation. It is a celebration of creation. There is nothing inherently special about the time period that we call Friday sunset or Saturday sunset, except that God imbued it with holiness as a weekly memorial of his creation. As such, it commemorates the great work that God accomplished with creation. And the time we spend with him constitutes a moad, a holy uh, appointed time of communion. That's Strong's 4150, you want the reference on it. Let's look again then at that first Sabbath. Back, back to Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts within them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the Sabbath day from all his work that he had made. And God blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it. That means set it apart. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Notice that God created the, uh, the Sabbath day by resting for that time period. Like, God really needed a rest. Come on. Uh, God created the Sabbath not out of his own need, but as a gift to mankind. As a gift to mankind. See that in Mark tw uh, 2, verses tw verse 27. Jesus is speaking, and he said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was a gift given to us. The Sabbath is a creation in time, but no less a part of creation than the stars of the heaven or the fishes of the sea. It's just a temporal creation instead of a physical one. We can observe the natural divisions of time. One rotation of the earth from sunset to sunset marks one day. One revolution of the moon from new moon to new moon marks one month. One revolution of the earth around the sun from vernal equinox to vernal equinox marks one year. We can observe these. These are clear. However, there is no clear, natural, observable demarcation for the week, except possibly the phases of the moon, but that's kind of difficult to discern. With the Sabbath day then, God created the week. He created the week as a unit of time, possibly for two, one or two reasons. He knows that we human beings need a brief rest after six days of labor. And secondly, more importantly, he wants to fellowship and commune with us, his children on a regular basis. We heard a lot about communing and fellowshipping in last Sabbath, didn't we? Okay. However, because it, a week is not a natural, observable division of time, it is something that's easy to lose track of. Um, that's why the knowledge of the Sabbath had to be restored to the ancient Israelites after they had been in captivity for more than a generation. God restored that knowledge by giving them the manna, not just as bread from heaven, but also as a sign that clearly defined which day was the Sabbath by the fact that it wouldn't rot overnight. Except on, on the eve of the We can verify statistically that God punished the ancient Israelites more frequently for Sabbath breaking than for any other commandment. 
which might seem harsh at first, until we realize that the breaking of this test commandment reveals a spirit of disobedience and lawlessness. Our failure to keep the Sabbath holy exposes a defiant motivation, our desire for self-will, our stubbornness, our rebellious attitude. These are the same personality characteristics that got Satan booted out of heaven. Um, Mark 7, 7 says, How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. It is our vanity that makes us think that we can know better than God, which is absurd. And if you want a fuller explanation on um, uh, vanity, go read the book of Ecclesiastics. It's full of it. Uh, is Isaiah 55, 9, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. We are by nature carnally minded, self-willed, disobedient, unwilling to submit to authority of God. Francis Sinatra got it right. I'll do it my way, not God's way. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. We are naturally children of disobedience, walking contrary to the law of God. And it takes the redemptive blood of Christ and his Holy Spirit to rewrite our personalities into one more in line with the laws of God. Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that worketh, notice, the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we had our conversation in times past, and in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the carnal mind, whereby we uh, were and were, by nature, the children of wrath, even as were others. It is this fourth spirit, the spirit of obedience and submission, of the will of God that makes the other spirits possible. Unfortunately, it is the one we also have the, the one with which we also have the most difficult. For ego, our vanity and pride, is the most powerful thing to overcome, and it will take us a lifetime to do so. So, in this message, what I've tried to do is to demonstrate that there is an elegant interconnectivity running through the Ten Commandments that I have characterized as the four spirits of the law, the spirit of, right honor, of honor and right reverence, the spirit of faithfulness, the spirit of honesty and integrity, the spirit of obedience and lawful self-discipline. Truly, there is a beauty in the parallels that underpin the four commandments and are picked up and echoed like a recurring theme throughout the, command, the final six commandments. These spirits are in harmony and each one adds a dimension to the other. It forms a beautiful melody. It's like a symphony in four movements. Further, the violation of any of these spirits strikes discord throughout all, creating a cacophonous den of confusion. However, these four spirits are truly all just manifestations of one great spirit that, that ties the entire law together, and that is the spirit of love. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Again, I repeat this as the same I meant earlier. One of them was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second one is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. It is this great spirit of the law that affirms the original intent of the law to teach us how to love.